0: Hello and welcome to Shaping Nations, the podcast that explores the development of smart infrastructure. My name is Patrick Hastings, and as the host of Shaping Nations, I'm excited to bring you our inaugural episode. On today's episode of the podcast, we are joined by the Honourable Andrew Constance, Minister for Transport and Roads, New South Wales. Andrew has served as a member for BEGA in New South Wales Parliament since 2003. He was sworn in as a Minister for Transport and Infrastructure in the Bard government in 2015. In March 2019, Premier Gladys Berejiklian expanded his portfolio to include transport and roads. As Minister, Andrew is overseeing a record $55.6 billion spend on the public transport and roads over the next four years. On top of the $58.3 billion, New South Wales Liberal and Nationals has already spent on public transport since winning government in 2011. Andrew, over to you.
1: Uh, well, good morning, everybody, and uh, first of all, can I start by acknowledging country uh, very importantly and pay my respects to Elders both past and present, and it's important to acknowledge the uh, Gadigal people in the lands which we gather this morning of the Aurora Nation. Can I just say, um, I'm going to be very open with you all this morning, so I'm not going to sit here and give you a dry, bland you know, infrastructure speech about the $72 billion we're spending over the next four years in a sustainable way, but I... Just think it's time to actually reflect on what we should all be about and I I constantly have these discussions every day since uh, the 31st of December 2019. Um, Since that time I've suffered post-traumatic stress disorder because of a major climatic event that happened to us all and there is no doubt that uh, when we talk about the black summer fires we're not talking about bushfires. We're actually talking about our humanity. And there is no doubt that what what we're seeing in terms of climate change in particular and the effect that it's having profoundly, you know, it's incredibly real. And the reason I've been left traumatised is because of not only what happened in terms of the nature of the firestorms, but also what it's done to my loved ones, to myself, to my neighbours, and, and to my friends and to my community. You know, we, south of here, um, I mean, the COVID pandemic is one thing. It distracted in many ways. What we also needed to focus on, particularly throughout the course of 2020, and that is how the hell are we going to get out of this mess? You know, the maturity of the debate in Australia about climate change is just gobsmackingly immature. And we've expended so much energy on debating whether it's real or not. We've dropped the ball on what we need to do in the innovation sense, public policy sense, and it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. You know, if you go and have a look at the maturity of the debate in Europe and what a Conservative government's doing in the UK versus what's happening here, we're, we're not, not in that ballpark. When our fires started on the 26th of November and it didn't reach the house till the 31st of December, you know, for the best part of a whole month, we were all sort of sitting there looking at, you know, an event unfolding of global magnitude. Maybe didn't realise it at the time, um, but if you see five and a half million hectares burnt of your state... 5.5 million hectares, the largest wildfire in the globe's history, more pyrocumulus events happen in the space of two months compared to the last 30 years. Let me tell you, those events aren't fun. And when they're happening at 8 o'clock in the morning, with zero humidity at 3am and temperatures in their mid-30s at 3am, you begin to think, well something dramatic is happening to us. And, uh, you know, to, to be able to experience that, no one should. You know, when I first saw the fire at 3am at my in-law's place, I thought, oh, this is going to be a very bad day because it, it, was, it was starting to build up in a, in a way. I mean, it took a 40k run-up in the space of seven, eight hours, but by the time I'd spent in the hours leading up to it before it actually reached my back door, you know, I was in the middle of a black storm. It was black. But it was also generating its own wind. It was changing the humidity. It wasn't what you typically experience in terms of normal bushfires um, with, you know, an afternoon fire and a nor'wester blowing it. It was almost as if it had taken every ounce of oxygen in the atmosphere and pumped it right up and just exploded. And I've got pictures which would shock you all because you would look at these photographs and think, well, that's not a bushfire, that's actually just a hailstorm or that's, that's a really dark black cloud. There'd still be this crisis media about it now, but that's what happened in my local community, a thousand homes. That's thousands of people who were left homeless. Some of them today, right now, as we speak, sit here in this wonderful building, are still living in shipping containers. Or in 40-year-old caravans, which leak when it rains, or under tarps. And that's not some venue overseas. That's just 300 k's down the road. And the effect of that mentally, I can't begin to tell you. It, 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 you know, the, the scenes that people experienced, the trauma on trauma and having to rebuild lives, this is very, very serious. And I, you know, I, I sat back at the time and I was listening to some of the uh, media and I was thinking, OK, well, we could have a huge debate about hazard reduction burns in national parks, land management practices, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that the Black Summer fires, which burned for the best part of seven months, was as a result of the changing climate. We've pushed it too hard. We've taken too much. And we've now got to give back to our environment if we're actually going to start to avoid these types of events. I've made it clear, I I do not care. I will spend the rest of my days in politics and beyond trying to ensure that we do not see firestorms again in this country. And what's particularly sad about this is that, you know, our environment's changed so drastically after these fire events. Not only have we seen the loss of incredible fauna and flora, but the, the forest ecology has now changed. Down home at the moment... You can now walk into the forest, or you can actually walk through any forest down there. The canopy's changed because of the nature of the fires. Incredible number of dead trees. But the black wattle has come back so aggressively and in, in such a dense way that you quite literally, if, if you walk into it, you get lost. And it's double the height of I am uh, that I am, and that's happened inside 15 months. We're now going through periods where we might have a heavy period of rain... And they're not have absolutely any rain whatsoever for a month and a half. And the, the bush dries off very quick. So the next dry spell, we are going to have these incredibly oily black wattles at such a dense level. And across a landscape of 5.5 million hectares, what we've also seen is the bushland grow back. It's growing back at the same rate. So the whole notion of concept of back burning and patchwork burning has changed forever. You can't... You're not going to be able to manage it. And therefore... As a result, in my mind, next time this happens and it's not going to happen in 30, 40 years time we're going to see these types of fire events within the next 10 years. And yes, you can throw in an overlay of El Nino cycles and what have you, but because of the nature of the ecology change, it's going to be pressing up against us again very, very quickly. The other week, I drove up from home and uh, came into the you know I got to the escarpment for between here and Wollongong. I looked at what you're all breathing. <laughs> It was Monday morning, they'd been had some hazard reduction burns on the weekend, but I, I'm particularly alarmed because it's not just bushfire smoke that you guys were all breathing in, I was about to breathe in because I was driving into the basin, but it was also that toxic cocktail of NOx gases, uh, you know, the diesel particulates, all of these things which don't escape this Sydney basin. You've got the natural wind off the ocean pressing it in, and then you, of course you've got the incredible topography, which made me think, well, you know, we we have to get moving very, very quickly. You know, you're all starting to see me arguing with others in government about road user charges on EVs. For goodness sake, don't tax innovation right now. We need it to scale up. It's not art. We need to incentivise the change in our behaviours incredibly dramatically to stop the degree of emissions that are happening across our community, I don't care if you believe in climate change or not, you're going to be a beneficiary of the innovation that we are all going to see. We're looking at it the wrong way. Everything we're doing in terms of climate change right now in Australia, we are looking at it in the wrong way. And we've got to change this. And when it comes to leadership, you can't be fearful of what somebody else might think in this regard. You know, NASA and the CSIRO aren't wrong. Some of my political colleagues are. And I I just think it's really just vitally important when we look at what we're doing, everything we do. It wouldn't matter if it's planning a bridge, planning a a subdivision on the metropolitan area, the outer metropolitan area of Sydney. Everything we do now must be done through this lens. And uh, that's why it's vitally important. When it comes to infrastructure, and touching on what Romley just said, I mean, everything we do, from a business case development through to planning it and working through uh, an EIS process and everything else, we must actually, to an absolute maximum, assess the sustainability of it. And moving beyond sustainability, we should be talking about circular economies. The circular economy... And I know certainly after um, what's uh, happened uh, in my part of the world, we're seeing some incredible leadership, not from government, from, you know, the, the bigger cheeses of this world in partnership with the KPMGs and, and banks to actually look at what we can do to move to a circular economy. In fact, some of the dairy farmers are so committed to this, they're actually looking now at carbon-neutral cows. Now, that sounds crazy, but... If you actually feed cows seaweed pellets, you reduce their meth- methane gas exposure by 90%. And, and between agriculture and transport and energy, we have an incredible ability to actually look at what's circular, not driven by government, but government actually be a participant in that circular economy and that circular way of life, and taking absolutely everything we do to the maximum in terms of how we can bring about that change. and, and that, you know that's incredibly exciting because it does mean jobs, it does mean wealth generation, it does mean a better quality of life for us all, and from my perspective we get the opportunity to never ever have another black, black summer. I don't know how we didn't lose thousands of people that day on New Year's Eve. I, I still to this moment can't tell you how that didn't happen. No one can. The best I can answer I can give is, well, we all got a text message at 6 a.m. to say get get the hell to the beach, um, and that didn't even necessarily work because there's no fire trucks around. You know, I, I just think we've we've got to really think long and hard about this. COVID has given us an opportunity to pause and reflect. One benefit of COVID, of course, is the fact that there has been an impact in terms of the amount of emissions globally. Not much else in terms of benefit, let me tell you, but but there is there is an opportunity for us now to, in a post-pandemic world to actually pause and reflect and think, well, this is what we now need to do. And Australia is well-placed because not only have we learnt from Black Summer, or we should have learned from Black Summer, but we're now obviously able to look at the pace of our economic growth in a post-pandemic world. Infrastructure will lead the recovery. The infrastructure investments we make will lead the recovery from, from this. But everything we absolutely do, from the, you know, the very nature of the inputs into infrastructure, the energy that's used to power the infrastructure development, the whole gambit uh, must be done through the, the very clear guise of sustainability. As Transport Minister, I am doing my level best to start to change that thinking. In fact, uh, I'm going to launch very soon Green Transport for New South Wales. No longer New South Wales uh, transport for New South Wales, but green transport for New South Wales. I have a clear expectation that our energy contracts, when it comes to our trains, for instance, should be 100 percent renewable. I mean, trains are about 1.5 percent of the overall base load intake when it comes to electricity consumption in this state. That's just Sydney trains. Uh, when we built Northwest Metro. We also built the largest solar farm in the nation's history to offset the, the energy consumption of that train. I've made it clear when it comes to electric buses, let's not be shy sure here, let's get this done by 2030. Uh, we're, we're, in essence, franchising the buses right now with the STA. Uh, those contracts are now going out to the private sector, but as part of that transition, I'm using the savings from those contracts to go back into changing the depots, and purchasing electric buses. Customs in Western Sydney, who's a producer of buses, um, and have now just converted their factory. They're now producing electric buses here in New South Wales, and they're just starting to showcase those uh, through the operators. That's That's a huge transition. On the electric vehicle front, no government agency should be doing anything other than purchasing an electric vehicle. And the reason that's important is because we changed the price point in terms of the second-hand car market which makes it affordable for everybody. So we move away from those high-cost EVs that we see currently to actually generating a second-hand car market. And what sits alongside that is the need to retrain our mechanics as well. So we've covered trains, we've covered buses, we've covered obviously the the commercial and private motor vehicle fleet, but these things need to happen as quickly as possible. And I believe that will. And I think people are willing to actually make that contribution in terms of that. And then at the same time, we've actually got to look at our built environment when it comes to the infrastructure we're building and how we can achieve that. And I don't believe we all, we have the answers there completely yet. And that's where I think a lot of you come into it. So on that note, um, thanks for having me this morning. And uh, it's great to be able to give these remarks. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much, Minister. I'm wondering whether you might have one or two minutes to answer a few questions, if possible. Uh, for those who haven't already, please uh, pull out your Slido apps and uh, get ready. I do have the first question here, which is um, as mentioned, the debate on climate change in Australia is terribly immature. Um, and we need urgent action. Can you talk a little bit on how you're going to motivate your colleagues uh, for a united response?
1: Uh, Well, I don't need to motivate Matt Keane. Um, He's pretty much pushing it. But, look, to be honest with you, I think... um, You know, I come from a regional area. um, And the only way to deal with the maturity of the debate is actually to humanise it. It is very hard to argue... Um, to a regional community that has lost so much, that this is normal. Oh, this was just a normal fire that we see every 30, 40 years. It's not, and everyone knows it. So I think the attitudes of the community are very different now. In the last three years, I think there's been a dramatic shift in the attitudes of regional people in particular. Um, So to that end, it very much becomes about how you can... Humanize, bring in the raw nature of it, and then as a result, the political leadership responds. And so I would say to any any politician, you know, when you when you actually see what I saw in terms of the best of humanity and the way in which people cared for each other through the fires, I think there is a very important connection there with what we need to do from a public policy sense. So um, that's, that's how that will tran- transition, I think, for Australia.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and I think you spoke um, very broadly to adapting and changing our existing transport sector, which is terribly exciting. Do you think there's uh, some room for a, a, radical, a radical reimagination of how we think about transport within, within the New South Wales and within the Australian context, um, in terms of both planning for and then redeveloping what we currently... Yeah, 100%.
1: 100%. You know, I mean, we're 20% of the state's greenhouse emissions. Even uh, Maritime now are looking at how they can electrify their boats. In fact, this morning, the reason I'm late, and I apologise for being a couple of minutes late, I actually rode an electric ferry this morning in Sydney. So there you go. (laughs) So watch this space. But it was super quiet, and you don't get those awful fumes that sit alongside ferries. But it's here. So it doesn't take much imagination if the technology and the innovation's here. We've just got to deploy it. Um, so buses, ferries, cars, all these things, um, incredibly different. But we've also got to be also thinking very differently about our own lives and, and how we all interact. And that's where you know, ultimately we're headed. Um, and, and transport will play a leading role. Push them on innovation, I'm certainly pushing them on the environment and measuring it. That's the other key thing in all this. Uh, I mean, one thing about uh, electrifying fleets is the cost of operations dropped dramatically. It's just the upfront infrastructure investment that's the hard part economically, but it's worth it in the end.
0: Fantastic. Um, I think you've also you've spoken very strongly about the environmental aspects, and uh, I think that's absolutely front of mind mm-hmm. across the globe at the moment. But what about the qualification of externalities in decision-making for, for transport? Have we considered sort of the... So, in your head, how are we considering the social, the social aspects and those broader externalities of... of your well,
1: I mean, when you think social aspects, I mean, particularly in terms of the responsibilities of governments to look after those less fortunate in our community and particularly those in the low, lower socioeconomic economic demographics. Um, this is the key. I mean, that's why I'm talking up the need for a second-hand car fleet that's purely electric, because people don't always buy new cars. And, you know, as we see the advent of the innovation changes, we are going to see full autonomy and, you know, fleet management and subscription transport and all of those things, which mean that people will subscribe to their service, they won't necessarily own a car into the future. Uh, and that, that does bring about incredible social benefits. So, you know, I think the, you know, as a, I guess the, the key point is we should always be about the freedom of the individual. And, you know, I, I look at what's happening in terms of our structures now, and there's got to be a complete change, which is why I'm talking about the circular economy, because I think that, that in itself will change that, that thinking. And everyone mm-hmm. participates and no one gets left behind.
0: Absolutely. <coughs> And I think we, we probably have time for one more. Yeah, if that's fine. That's if fine. that's OK. Um, so in terms of the... Um, you've, you've spoken very strongly about electric vehicles and the utilisation of electric. Obviously, the next question is hydrogen, um, particularly if we start talking about the announcements around the Hunter, Hunter region, et cetera. Yep. What's the vision from, from your perspective around the role of hydrogen in this transformation?
1: Well, look, I, th- I think the main thing is, is that, um, you know, we're, we're wonderfully placed in Australia in terms of hydrogen... Um, there is no doubt that the technology will continue to advance so you don't have the high-end upfront infrastructure costs that we see currently. Uh, We have looked very closely at hydrogen buses, particularly in Europe. So, you know, I think um, we will get to that point where hydrogen will play an incredible role, uh, sitting alongside, obviously, the phenomenal improvements in battery storage. Um, But, you know, the reality is this does come at a cost and we've got to be prepared for that. But at what cost is, you know, a bushfire event like we had, which was $4.5 billion? I mean, we've got to look at the offsets in terms of, we can't just say, oh, we can't... And I'm going through these arguments internally at the moment. I mean, if we electrify every, every bus in Sydney, the offset in terms of health costs and environment costs is $1.9 billion, I know what I'd sooner spend the money on. So the whole structure of government where you've got a you know got these set pigeonholed, silo-based budgets attached to each government department if one gov- government agency shows leadership here and it leads to an offset over there that's incredibly valuable to our community but we've got to change the thinking in terms of how we're structuring our businesses and how we're structuring government because at the moment that's prohibiting that. So uh, you know, look, I think ultimately at the end of the day, it wouldn't matter if it was hydrogen or whatever, the upfront investment and the offset of stopping what so many of us lived through is so worth it. That's the point. I mean, I lost mates that day. You know, one of my great mates lost his father and his brother in, a, in the fire, killed. And, and, you know, I look at what, what happened to him, and I just think to myself, well, at what point do we really put price on humanity in this way? So let's stop the arguments, let's be smarter about it and know that, yeah, if we have to put some money in here, there's going to be an incredible saving over there. And that's it's pretty simple, but doesn't s- seem to happen that way.
0: It is a big shift from the current thinking. And I think to the, to the point... A lot of the sustainability professionals talk about whole of life, whole of life cost, and whole of life return yep. on investment. And if we can start shifting our decision making in that direction, um, we will probably see a lot more of those flow-on effects come through.
1: Yeah, I mean, like even in the buses. I mean, okay, most buses have a 25-year life in terms of the diesels. Okay, we're going to have to invest very heavily to either convert or phase those buses out. Now, I think we can convert. I think we've just got to think about how we do it, but. You know, there is no doubt. I mean, if you compare the cost of running a bus on a, on battery at eleven cents per kilometre compared to diesel at a dollar thirty, your whole of life cost soon is, you know, there. You've got to think like that. So, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful, and I think we've just got to be better at measuring what we're doing.
0: Fantastic! That's cool. a wonderful way to finish. Thank you so much right, for your thank time, you Minister. Start. Great, we appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to our first episode of Shaping Nations. If you want to support our show and be the first to know when a new episode drops, be sure to subscribe to our show. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please leave us a five-star review. We'll see you next time.